The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the novelist Jonathan Leatham, whose new book is called Brooklyn Crime Novel. Now, for anyone who knows Jonathan's work, they'll go, Brooklyn. Brooklyn again, Mr. Leatham. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of sense it is for you what deprivation was for Larkin. Well, you know, I stayed away for 20 years, so it's uh, it's not as though I, I um, didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the the sense I had was, of course, that this book insisted itself upon me in various ways, very slowly over those twenty years that I was avoiding it, and it comes out of a direct sense that first that Fortress of Solitude, the book that I left off writing about Brooklyn with, was exhaustive, and I mean that in a positive sense that I was done, that I'd said everything I knew to say about it, and then gradually seeping over me was this understanding that I was changing, Brooklyn continued to change, and I had a tremendously more to give to the effort if I let myself accept the assignment. Now, it's, you know, it's called a crime novel, and both of those words are kind of weighted and freighted in the book. I mean, to start with, let's start with the second one of them, because in a lot of ways, a lot of what's going down here feels like it could be a different sort of book, could be a memoir, could be an ethnographic or geographical history of Brooklyn. What made you write this as a sort of nonfiction novel, if you'd accept that description? And and how important was it that the stuff in it was true? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, nonfiction novel, I relate to that in one sense, and that, you know, one of the novelists that was defining for me as I came of age was Norman Mailer, who who has these books that are done with a kind of third-person version of himself as the protagonist, but also Kurt Vonnegut. You know, and I, I read these exploded novels that he would write, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, obviously, and Breakfast of Champions, where he introduces himself, even introduces the book with what is ordinarily an apparatus you only see in nonfiction, which is an introduction, that essentially says, I can't do this the normal way. This is going to be something else. And, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I took courage from the idea that these things were enclosed in the history of the novel. And as well as, of course, a most interesting and much more recent version in America anyway, that people have been writing, you know, called autofiction, which, you know, I didn't really think, oh, it's my turn or let me get aboard this train. But they remind us that the novel has always been complicated by its relation to reality. Really going back to the origins of the form, it encloses all kinds of documentation and and also the pretense that it's nonfiction, you know, Defoe writing about the plague and claiming that he's writing a kind of a nonfiction account or Melville writing these fake histories of journeys that he sort of took on whaling boats. And I thought, this is good. I can do this. I can use all of this. Not to put myself as the equal to any of these characters, Vonnegut or Defoe or, or whomever, but to say that I'm going to let them license me to write this in this crazy open format. And that's what I did. And so there are aspects, I think, absolutely of memoir, but even more than memoir of, um, 
I would say, of kind of the oral history because I went to lots of sources and incorporated loads of other people's voices into this book with their permission. And of course, I do take responsibility for what the voices in the book end up saying because I transformed them and you know amalgamated them into a fiction. But they're also evident, I think, their texture is still still present. Yeah, you have what is unusual, I think, in, in a work of fiction is you say, the mistakes are mine. <laughs> yeah, and the acknowledgements, which suggests right. Well, that's a very traditional thing for nonfiction writers to exactly. say. <laughs> uh, but you know, the other form that I thought of, which is this, may be counterintuitive, but there's a kind of a a form called in cinema called the essay film. You know, it's what you see with Chris Marker, or um, famously uh, Orson Welles' F for Fake. Agnes Varda used it a couple of times. You know, the Gleaners and I is an essay film, and it's essentially where the the film is organized as a voice that just wants to draw your attention to things. It says, wait, come over here now and look at this. And it's only the urgency of the inquiry that organizes the material into one form. And that was what I thought this book would work as, a, a kind of essayistic novel where these were fictional sequences using, as so much fiction does, portions of real experience. But that's not unusual. I mean, everyone's novel uses portions of real experience, but it's the structure where the voice drives you through it saying, okay, wait, now I've said this, but let me contradict myself and let's, let's go look over here at this other thing. And it's the prominence of that guiding, I don't know what to call it, kind of in literary criticism and also in writing teaching, we have this term called the implicit author. It's not really me, but I'm going to play the author of the book now for a while. And the author of the book is very much with you, kind of with an arm around your shoulder, as Vonnegut is in, in those books. Yeah, there are a lot of characters, recurring characters in this book, but maybe the most important one is this implicit author, is this narrator. And there's a sort of wrinkling at the number of the characters, the wheeze, who's this kind of nostalgic barfly, who yes. I hope it's not a spoiler to say we later discover <laughs> a sort of school friend of the author's, is feeding him information. He's sending him material and so Absolutely. Stuff. Yeah. In a way, there are two friends and one, the, the novelist, the, the writer of the book, because he actually says that I was never a novelist. And I felt I had to write a novel to, to answer this other novel. <laughs> it's a kind of a weird game I'm playing because I'm a very experienced novelist playing a first time novelist who doesn't really even know if he is one. Yes. But, and the actual Brooklyn novelist who presumably has a shade of you in himself is much sure. resented by I'm, yes. our protagonist and by the weeds. In a way, the method acting I'm doing here is, what if these guys from the neighborhood had a book written about where they grew up that was sort of like The Fortress of Solitude and they loathed it? They thought it was a disaster for them because it misrepresented everything and erased them. And so they, one of them, who's this you know, kind of crank researcher, starts sending documentation to the other and saying, here's the truth. And the, the recipient, who's the, the implicit author of this book, begins to think, all right, well, I, I guess I'm going to try to say what happened. Let me just say what really happened and see, see what that looks like. And at first, it's a very – he thinks it can be a selfless act, and he tries to leave himself out of the book. And of course, the self creeps back in. In a way, one of the subjects of this book is the way you might think you can get outside of yourself and be objective about where you're from, about your origin story. Let me just write about the city, not about, not about myself. But the, it turns out the interior city is creeping in. Is it a companion piece to the Fortress of Solitude in that direct way? I mean, is an aspect of it that is you saying, we've got to get 
you know, another angle on the way I told it there and yes. then discovering it's turtles all the way down. I think that's really right, that it bears an open relationship to this earlier book, but it's not a sequel and it's not, it doesn't even really resemble it. There are just material circumstances that, that they have in common. It's like the DNA is the same. Or, uh, you know, if you were using a 21st century metaphor, you'd say the source code is the same, but something else has been built out of that source code. But I also have a joke that I've been making, which is that the the books are frenemies. Yeah, I don't know if that slang has reached the UK, oh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, they're frenemy books. But also somebody else made a comparison that's much more exalted, which I like a lot. So I'm going to repeat it to you. I haven't tried saying this aloud yet, but I, I listened to it with with great pleasure, which is they said the two books now form a kind of giant meta novel, which is like the two pieces of Cervantes' Don Quixote, because in the second half of Don Quixote, all the characters that they meet have read the earlier book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's got that kind of, I mean, very characteristic of you, sort of metafictional kind of twist. Can I ask, do you feel when you were writing, I mean, Fortress of Solitude in certain ways is really aggressively fictional, you know, notoriously, it's kind of swerve into magic realism. It, ha- that- it has fantasy in it, absolutely. Yeah. But um, even before that, it's it depends on a very traditional kind of Dickensian Bildungsroman, coming of age, you know, the poor little orphan boy <laughs> around whom all this experience collects and all these grotesque figures appear before him. It's it's very it is absolutely a very deep, deeply novelistic novel. But at this one, you know, I find myself trusting that when you say, look, the origins of the phrase Burham Hill, which was the one given to Gowanus when it gentrified, or, you know, the relationship between this street and this street, and this is where the hookers were, and this is where the convent is across from the penitentiary. Yeah. My sense is that if you went to Brooklyn, all of these places would would be as you described them. Is that how you did it? Yes. I didn't want you to feel any distrust that I was organizing the kind of... Um, sociological structure of this space that the characters move through dishonestly. Obviously, errors are possible or errors of emphasis. Maybe someone else would say, well, sure, that's like that, but that's not so important as he's making it. But I, I'm glad you say that you trust that layer of it because it's pleading with you to believe it. And I, you know, my brother read the book and he, of course, he lived through all of this in his own completely specific way. And he gave me a great big... Sh- a delightful sibling shrug. He said, well, there's a lot of weird stuff in this one. I don't know what I think, but you know, you know what? You must be used to that in your novels by now. Of course. Absolutely. But, but what he said was, but you've got the receipts. (laughs) In other words, he knew he couldn't quibble with that kind of that underpinning of the history work I'd done because I did do so much research and I wear it on, you know, the book wears it on the outside. It, it says, I know more than you about how this place came to be. And so the terms of this storytelling will include me making up stuff and me confusing you about who is who and what is real in the lives of the characters. But in terms of the city, you should believe me. A number of the characters don't have names. Almost none of them do. Yeah. Some of them have sobriquets or epithets as sort of C. Honorifics. Uh, Honorifics, yes. Um, but, you know, a lot of them are, you know, the white boys from Dean Street. Yeah. What was your kind of reasoning in doing that? Were they, was it to make them, if you like, more interchangeable and sociologically representative? Or 
was it to set up some nice surprises later when one turns out to be another in a different time frame? Yes. Well, I, I, I wanted to, to work with one of the things that is usually seen as least enjoyable or least agreeable in the reader's experience of novels, which is one does mix characters up sometimes or feel that there are too many. And I sort of, it's a gamble, obviously, but I beg the reader at the outset, I say, don't worry about this. Here's a couple to pay attention to. But most of these guys are sort of interchangeable, <laughs> especially all these white boys. Don't bother with them. Just ride the story and it'll sort itself out as it needs to. But I also, I was seeking to defeat sentimentality and subjective, uh, you know, kind of projection for the reader as well as for myself by doing this and look at things a little more like a kind of a long shot in a movie or a wide shot in a movie where you see figures in space and you realize I can't make out their faces and I don't need to. What's happening amongst them and collectively is the story here. And so, of course, again, like everything that I said here, it can't be done absolutely. And there are figures that come to prominence, figures that gain names, figures that become intensely personal. But withholding that as long as I could or as well as I could was part of the special structure of this project, which proceeded by exclusions in many senses. I also, you know, I openly say, we're not going to fill this book with all kinds of examples of music or cultural experience, you know. In Fortress of Solitude, the characters are constantly listening to real music, and you can kind of have a playlist that accompanies the, the book and feel very this warm glow of top 20 nostalgia for the 70s. But I needed to take away those consolations in some ways so that I could strip down to something more urgent, again, in, in what I'm calling the inquiry that the book is making. Yes. What do you call it an inquiry? Well, I think that I realized that the Fortress of Solitude, in my earlier work when I wrote about Brooklyn, I, you know, I wasn't a researcher. I wasn't a, <laughs> an academic. I wasn't a sociologist. And I'm, I'm still barely any of those things although I've had a university job for a long time now. But I began writing fiction from a purely imaginative standpoint, purely personal, impulsive standpoint. I mean, in some ways, I was trained as a visual artist, and I thought of making a literary object as being like making a sculpture or a painting. You just expressed something. You just threw, you know, it was like action painting. You just threw language around, and your imagination melded with this language, and then you brought it out for people to look at and say, well, what is this? I seem to have made something. <laughs> but the idea that it took on responsibilities of collective remembrance or collective thinking, let alone individual thinking, you know, I didn't, I undervalued the intellectual freight that a novel can bear. And in this book, I'm accepting it absolutely, which doesn't mean the book isn't eccentric, that I don't make attempts to be humorous or suspenseful or that I don't indulge my own peculiarities. I do everywhere here. But I also say, let's figure this out a bit. You know, like it's fine to constantly refer to the fact that I grew up in a place where, you know, it was historically crazy with gentrification and racial difference and, and, and class difference. I'm constantly claiming the sort of street cred of being from this time and place. But what if I, you know, took on the job openly of thinking about what it adds up to? And so this book dares to, to say, let's, you know, 
conduct the inquiry. Now, you know, famously novelists will say, it's not our job to figure things out. And I don't really believe it is, but that maybe questions are framed at least. Well, one of the questions, I mean, one of the sort of central aspects of the book, I and mean, I'm not sure how much we've yet, for, for readers who haven't read it, got a sense of what how this book works. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's a very strange book indeed. Yeah. Um, but I should say extremely readable and interesting one. But one of the cent- things towards which it approaches steadily is what you call the dance, into which is a real sociological moral inquiry about how kids, you know, pre-adult children interact on the streets according to a whole set of sort of preconceived and almost formalised, ritualised behaviours, which goes back to the Fortress of Solitude. You talk about, I think in that book, you talk about yoking. Is that yeah, right? The, that's right. Putting a he- another child in a headlock. Exactly. Is the dance, I mean, can you explain what you mean by the dance and whether in some ways your description of it here is feeling you didn't get it properly or enough or deeply enough in the Fortress of Solitude? Well, I mean, so first of all, I should back up just to say how very proud I am, not only was, but am of the Fortress of Solitude. It was a giant leap for me at the time. I think the conversation around these things was comparatively very underdeveloped. I mean, one of the things that makes this book different is that I have the benefit of how the world has articulated its understanding of urban class gentrification, racial issues. You know, I'm part of a conversation. I'm not creating it in a vacuum. I think that in The Fortress of Solitude, I was obsessed with naming things that seemed unnameable. And at the time, they were more or less unnamed. I was forging descriptions for experiences that seemed impossible because even having undergone them, they'd gone sealed in silence. You know, the street life dictated this silence this permanent unclarity, like don't talk of it, don't figure it out. It's your job not to. (laughs) That was our charge as children, was to keep these things sealed up. And this mystery, I, I did penetrate it to a certain degree, I think, in that book. I wanted to advance the cause even further in this one. And overthrowing my own phrase, my own name that I'd given it, the, the yoking, which came from the street, but I kind of made it my own, in that book, I called it yoking, and it was, as I say, a kind of an act of defiance against silence to to describe it so extensively there. But the if I think that I've turned a corner on the on the previous description, it's that the dance by the new name, giving it the name the dance, describes the mutuality and the flow back and forth of power and implication, the sense of involvement in a way that is even more scrupulous or more complete. And I became fascinated. I have all uh, became, I've been fascinated for years in a sense, ever since experiencing it with the degree to which we as children on the streets at that time were enacting ideas really about race and class and power and difference and possibility amongst ourselves. None of those things under, you know, descriptive language that could ever be, you know, we we didn't enunciate it. We lived it. But we were almost in a kind of 
political scientific laboratory. <laughs> and one of the laws, of course, of this system was that the adults weren't to know about any of it, that it was impossible to make them understand the life we lived those days on the street, the pain, also the beauty, the complicity, the involvement, the sense that even having an enemy was a form of a familial experience, a connection that rooted us to the meaning of being a child in that time. And it was a fundamentally criminal world. We were all victims and we were all perpetrators. And that's what the dance names. The fact that in the dance, everyone leads <laughs> and everyone follows. And the dance in a kind of paradigmatic form is a kind of ritualized mugging. Is that a fair way to put it for people who aren't you know, Absolutely. Haven't, haven't the, read this or the previous the, book? The core of it is a transfer of property. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe a baseball glove or a bicycle or a bus pass, which is a, you know, a thing you could use to get on public transportation that you'd be given at your school. Every month you'd get a new bus pass. But most often it was pocket change or a dollar or two. And of course, all the things that surround this humiliation, sense of obligation or guilt or in some miniature way. I mean, this would be the most far-fetched description. We would never have recognized the word, but what, was it a kind of on-the-spot reparations, you know? I think you use that phrase in the book, actually, don't you? Yeah. Because the, the, yeah. the parents are thinking, I'll give you your mugging money because the black kids deserve it. I mean, there's a sense, the strength of feeling surrounding that and in the previous book, it's just it feels like there's a sort of, because it's so bound up with shame and humiliation, that this is something that's just, you know, followed you since you were 11. Absolutely. But also, not only those negative descriptions, but also even more elusive in some sense, more mysterious, but I, I pursued it adamantly in this new book, a transfer of a kind of intimacy, sexuality sometimes, in sense of involvement or rootedness to boyhood, what, what, what should I say, collective apprehension of what it was to be a male body in space before these matters had been sorted out. You know, one of the strange things about The Fortress of Solitude is that that book itself divides into two pieces. And it would seem in the first half of the book that I will, all I'm talking about in the, in the childhood experience of that poor little white kid is terrifying and shameful and tragic. But everyone gets very sentimental about it in the second half of the book when he's a, a grown-up and he's so much less appealing and so much less connected to any world. They say, oh, I, I wanted him to stay in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had and, – and, and I know that the book works that way that you end up feeling nostalgic for the pain of being part of this collective childhood experience that in, incorporates so much despair, apprehension, but is still a gathering in social space that generates meaning. And what happens in the adulthood is you're flung out of this and you're absolutely alone. Your context is missing. And your ability, you know, I'm, people will say in a, ca in a typical casual way that it's so much easier to make friends when you're a child, but it's also 
just past the layer of friendship, it's so much easier to experience yourself as part of a meaningful collective, maybe one that incorporates <laughs> frenemies and yeah. enemies, but all of it comprehensible to you in a way that's deeply nourishing. And also, boys are trained away from physical intimacy with one another. And one of the things that dance incorporates is physical intimacy. And then the howling deficit creates so much anxiety and we're trained in homophobia so that it can't be sought, it can't be reproduced. You know, yes, as puppies, you can tumble around. When you're a toddler, you can lay in a pile of other boys and giggle. And maybe you'll have some furtive sexual experiences with other boys when you're 12 or 13. But all of this is to be shed or else there's the <laughs> catastrophe of having to face a bisexual or a homosexual identification. And this must be avoided at all costs. Well, what's been destroyed is the fact that every kind of boy experiences nourishment in contact with other male bodies. Now, parenthetically, because you mentioned that Fortress of Solitude does indeed fall into two parts. Um, I remember famously at the time, the critic James Wood seemed not to have reached the end of the second part. <laughs> <laughs> and gave you a stinky review where he seemed to think this was a work of documentary realism. And you rather memorably called him out at a big essay saying, you didn't finish my book, you big git, or words to that effect. Um, <laughs> what, did that ever shake out? Did he ever come clean or you know, respond to that or apologize? Did you, have you had contact No, since? and I, I don't think he owes me an apology. I, I love the 20 years after um, received version of, of this, Sam, that you've <laughs> put together. I mean, the truth is it wasn't a stinky review. It was a kind of interestingly mixed review. And I think that, as I understand it, he expressed bewilderment. He may have done so in a brief, very brief note to me that I had rejected a review that had said so many very nice things because it did say some nice things. And you know what? Answering the review was an error for me, not in the sense that I don't mean what I said when I answered it, but that the gesture doesn't work. It's not a functional one in literary public space. It only makes people remember <laughs> things as a kind of um, playground incident <laughs> that yeah, occurred. Yeah, we low minds enjoy those <laughs> sorts of things anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I just posed a question. I said, what troubled me, I should have made it just a simple question. It, really, my whole reply could have been boiled down to just a, a, a query, which is how can you review such a book without mentioning the magic ring? <laughs> and I, I still think it's kind of an amazing thing. And if I, you know, maybe if I'd had the grace or the prescience to only publish that one line of inquiry, just the one question, I would have caused him to formulate an answer to the question instead of in turn feeling slightly hurt or put out that I'd rejected what he saw as the positive aspects of his review, which were positive about all the, all, as you say, the realist elements. Maybe he was trying to avoid spoilers. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll move on to <laughs> higher minds. Um, the, the structure of this book you know, you've said like a French essay film, it's like where the narrator's putting his attention in the sense that the crime or crimes of the of the title are something it approaches to. Was there an element of like, it needs to be this shape in order to reveal certain things slowly? Or was there a bit of following your nose? I mean, a lot of it moves through the mid and late 70s and early 80s and up to the 90s. But, you know, it's kind of heart is in the 70s, which coincides yes. with your own childhood. It's helplessly grounded in the 
the center of my childhood. Yeah. You know, even as it tries its best. It's one of the many examples in this book, I think of it saying, I'm going to try to do everything. And then in a way falling back and saying, well, you know, I can't. (laughs) I'll try to do, you know, five decades. But really, of course, I'm going to be talking about these key weeks almost in the lives of these children. You know, so that tension between what's possible for the novel to do, for any novel to do, and the the way it must eventually become circumscribed by certain priorities. The idea of it as a crime novel was actually imposed on me by a very odd circumstance, which is that I told my publisher when I was agreeing to write it, and I had nothing, I had nothing on the page. I simply said, I'm going to write a Brooklyn novel. I don't have a title and I'm, and I, don't have a plan, but I know I need to go back there. And when the contract came back in the place of title, instead of just saying Brooklyn novel, un- unnamed Brooklyn novel or untitled Brooklyn novel, it said Brooklyn crime novel. Someone had inked that in thoughtlessly, maybe just kind of thinking, well, that's the sort of thing he does, you know. Yeah, motherless Brooklyn <laughs> all over again. Yeah. And I, at first, I was quite peeved. I thought this was, you know, in a way, I, I made up for myself this oppressive, editorial expectation to push back against. I was like, oh, you want a crime novel, do you? Okay, well, I'll give you a crime novel. It'll be crimes on every page and no no detective and no solution and no clues. <laughs> so how do you like that for a crime novel? So it became a kind of push and pull, which is a very Brooklyn thing to do to become aggrieved and maybe overly aggrieved, You know, walk around with a chip on your shoulder because you think someone's done you wrong. So it was a very Brooklyn attitude to take, actually. <laughs> and But this idea actually seeped into my thinking about my material, which was, oh yeah, it is a crime novel because we lived in a fundamentally criminal paradigm. Our world was criminal then. We thought about ourselves and related ourselves to the idea of crime necessarily. You know, am I a victim or am I going to be a perpetrator? Might be better to be a perpetrator. So I'm at least going to rehearse a little bit of petty larceny and shoplifting or or vandalism. I'll become a graffiti artist. In whatever sense, it was a way of taking agency on the streets to identify what form of criminal you were to be. And um, this seemed very important. And so I started to see the book as a catalog of every possible crime, but, but also, of course, building up to and revealing the defining and you know permanently mysterious, permanently unnerving, destabilizing crimes that we both experienced and narrated in that place. Well, not the news of narrated. I mean, like all your work, it's got a kind of metafictional quality of, you know, looking at how narration kind of creates reality around it. And you talk about the way that the experience of Brooklyn and the dance comes out in the literary tastes of your characters in, in Hard Boiled. Yeah, that a kind of yeah. hard-boiled idiom is is what they take, but then that it gets kind of further layered by irony. Can you talk about how you know what you meant by that? And well, I've of course been very attracted to the hard-boiled voice all my life, and and used it to begin writing novels at all. My first novel was Gun with Occasional Music, which was a very direct uh, emulation. It's <laughs> the kind word for it, right? Of Raymond Chandler and Ross McDonald. I was making myself into a novelist by figuring out how they'd done it. And how this format, voice, but also narrative structure, 
this kind of ironclad. I mean, people make fun of Raymond Chandler for not having a plot in his books or not knowing how the plot worked. But by the time of, of Ross MacDonald, that Chandler story had become almost as um, ironclad or as reliable as a sonnet is for a poet. There's an absolute rhythm of experiences and revelations and a sort of superstructure of scenes in the present that are always making reference to it, another layer, a mystery or a crime that happened in the deep past that explains the one that's happening in the present. It becomes systematic. And that was my way of learning to be a novelist. But I also was deeply attracted to the way that the hard-boiled voice manages distress. Now, did I understand it on those terms at the time? No, not at all. But I recognized it because the Hardball voice connects to a kind of street voice, which I knew from Brooklyn, from the way we talked amongst ourselves and romanticized the talk amongst ourselves, the way people in the Brooklyn streets self-narrate is hard-boiled. And that has entered into the American grain, right, as the way characters in certain films talk, not just the private detectives, but you know, if you if you watch a war movie created in Hollywood by mostly Jewish screenwriters who grew up in Brooklyn, they will always have a character who's from Brooklyn, who's on the tank or on the ship or in, on the battlefield. And often his name is simply Brooklyn. And everyone knows how that character is going to act and react, and <laughs> how he'll be very brusque and he'll make fun of you. And he doesn't seem like he's got a, a tenderness, but then of course he'll turn out to have a sort of heart of gold or be deeply sensitive or, 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 or quite gravely injured and sense, you know, in, in a sense, it's all the, the hardboiled voice is always the tough guy who's very hurt underneath, very oh, well, Hemingway being the, the kind of paradigm, I guess. Yeah. So I thought this is a fundamental fact about this idea. And if you think about trauma and the invention of the hardboiled, all of those writers, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, these were war veterans. The idea of the trench coat comes from trench warfare. This is shell shock. This is collective, you know, I mean, this, the, the First World War, the way it transformed the sense of global collective injury at how much mass violence had been inflicted by the new technological warfare. This is a generation of men handling something that is beyond their capacity to handle. How representative is Brooklyn and how sui generis is it, do you think? I mean, is the story of Brooklyn's gentrification, I know it's a moving target because, you know, I remember you saying shortly after Fortress of Solitude was published, you know, the thing is it keeps trying to gentrify and it keeps kind of falling back and something yeah. else pushes through. I mean, is the Brooklyn you describe in that book, the Brooklyn you describe in this book, the interplay between them and indeed the kind of sociology of its streets and its mixed communities and its brownstones, is that like really unique to Brooklyn or is that a story of America itself? Well, this is such a great question and it's, it's, it's unanswerable. And I think that, again, this doubleness, that it transmits universal ideas about human beings trying to live together in social space, particularly urban social space, in such a way that it's – and by it, I mean Brooklyn, but also my, account, my personal accounts of it, my two different attempts at that account seem to have a, a paradigmatic quality. And I recall 
I mean, talking to you in the UK now, I recall most vividly, but it happened in many different contexts, a guy in Scotland when I was visiting, kind of gra- almost grabbing me by the collar and saying, you know, and I can't do a Scottish accent, so I won't try, but, you know, kind of listen, mate, this, you may think your book's about Brooklyn, but it's about my life. <laughs> this is me. This is me. You wrote me. And of course, that's a wonderfully flattering moment. But also this happened in other American cities. It was very strongly generational, especially if people had grown up in the 70s, that their sense of what street life had been for them, that the book had translated. Now, some of this also is the beneficiary of something I already just mentioned, which is that the people who built the idea of American urban culture were often from New York. And they were often screenwriters who then made this quite universal and and into a kind of a, a paradigm that other people recognized. And then subsequent popularizations, you know, Paul Oster or Spike Lee making Brooklyn famous in, you know, sometimes in corny ways, sometimes in quite vivid ways. Just before I wrote these books, I think offered me a prop, a, a, you know, a, a, or a stage I could stand upon and re- and make reference to these, what had become more and more iconographic visions of this space. But in this new book, I really also wanted to bear down or bore down into what was extremely specific, uncanny in its specificity about the neighborhood I was from, the street I was from, which is that it was a peculiarly ill-defined area. It wasn't a, a given neighborhood, really. It was a crossroads where other neighborhoods bumped into each other, and it was not dominated by any one racial or class group. It had this almost bizarre multiplicity of uses by different communities at the same time when I was growing up there. And that's not what everyone experiences. The majority of people grow up in an enclave, you know, whether it's whether they're part of it or not. You know, they grow up in the predominant Irish neighborhood. And then maybe they're Irish and they feel that's what it's like, or or they're Italian and they feel quite anxious about being the only Italian kid in the Irish neighborhood, or whatever it might be. But enclaves are the rule. This neighborhood was it defied that by its crazy multiplicity. And that happened to be what I dealt with <laughs> and enjoyed because I found much of that was, I think, the the most stimulating and fascinating part of my childhood was the way in which this neighborhood couldn't really be coherently claimed by any one voice. I mean, there is a a sort of running joke, running theme, running subplot in the book about the search for the apocryphal Lovecraft basement. Um, (laughs) And the book has a kind of, you know, Lovecraft basement in its id of of race and the history of race in America and the, the power relations. Of course. As the kind of, well, as you called yourself in the previous book, the uh, you know, uh, white boy of Burham Hill, particularly given how febrile and difficult conversations about race in the States have been in the last 10 years, did you find yourself second-guessing yourself writing about race or thinking there are certain characters whose perspective I have to be really careful writing from or, or stories I'm not allowed to tell? Oh, of course. I mean, second-guessing, third-guessing, 12th and 15th-guessing. That was my job. And when you speak of being careful, you know, so often this conversation is put in binary terms. Either one doesn't go anywhere near the third rail, the hot material, or one does it in this cavalier defiance. You know, 
you you put on a a Mexican hat and you announce that you're allowed to do anything you you like because you're an artist. And there's nothing in between this. And I think this is a madness, of course. It's a typical bifurcation of what needs to be explored deep in the middle, which is my for me, the necessity, because of the experience I've lived through, of exploring otherness. And I mean this at so many different levels. And it takes not only courage, forget defiance. Defiance, I don't think, ought to be in the, an ingredient whatsoever. You should stop if you're feeling defiant and ask yourself what, who you're imagining you're being defiant against. But it takes not only kind of strength and bravery to leap into the unknown of the other, it takes tenderness, <laughs> it takes love, and it takes exploration and listening and learning. You know, of course I second-guessed. I did nothing else. That's how you work, you know, by this process of yearning in, into a space that frightens you and means everything to you. And that you also love even if you feel sometimes that you, you shouldn't be allowed to love it so much. And so all of this comes together into the process that for me was, uh, you know, I was compelled into. I, it was my circumstance and my fate to be making the attempt. And then, and the main, then once you accept that this is the situation, making it with every form of humbleness and, and intimate, what should I say, hesitancy or care you can summon. That's something you do a little in this book and a lot in some of your previous books is, you know, you, you've long been someone who embraces genre writing, you know, hard-boiled or, you know, Fortress of Solitude, which, you know, sang to me as a teenage nerd on the other side of the Atlantic, the sort of superhero comics and all these sort of, you know, sort of disreputable, unliterary genres. Do you feel like the world of literary fiction has become less hostile over the years to those things? Do you think we're making a better accommodation now? Well, I mean, I think absolutely, in a broad sense, that's been transformed. I'm old enough, I'm old, that I remember a kind of a, I don't even want to call it root, because that suggests it has a meaningful grounding in anything, but a kind of crude, broad, absolute rejection of fantastic imagery, fantastic iconography, materials in what was seen as the literary mainstream. In English, you can trace this conversation, you know, in the kind of resistance that results when genius writers like J.G. Ballard in the UK or Ursula Le Guin or Thomas Dish or Philip K. Dick arise inside the subculture of science fiction and insist themselves on the imaginations of readers who aren't hidebound and then there's this crisis, right? And that was the crisis. Uh, I don't know how old you are, Sam, but that's the crisis I grew up inside. And I, I sort of made it a kind of a sport to play at and push against this by talking about it constantly. Now, you know, at some point halfway through that, uh, generations of readers came along, and not because of my efforts. I don't credit myself with some transformative political capacity literary political capacity. But some readers came along who almost were embarrassed by my 
urging them not to worry about fantastic materials. They were like, what are you talking about? I, I you know, I kind of, I read what I like. <laughs> <laughs> and there, it's the readers who took care of this. It couldn't really be done from the top down because the critical institutions were so calcified around around that idea. Even though, as I was very eager to point out, and you know, and I wasn't alone in this, I didn't invent this rhetoric, the story of what we call literature involves imaginative and fantastic capacities at every level and in every era, right up until this very late, you know, construction that we happened to be inside at the moment I was talking, that somehow real, realism was the only sublime, the only authentic or, or serious form of literary expression. Well, you know, there was a time when novels themselves weren't taken seriously. To write yeah. seriously was to write poetry or essays. Novels were a junk culture item. So I, I don't really care about any of this very much personally. And I've also lost my appetite for the dialogues around it, which, you know, because the past, you know, it's the dead hand of the past. It's the Faulkner in the past is, isn't ever gone, it's right? not even past. We can still find the prejudice expressed in very, you know, inane corners of the academy. Not really the academy. Academics aren't the ones holding this up, but it's sort of like some sort of weird nexus of like aging literary critical or or publishing or librarian apparatus you know like we must <laughs> we must have a hierarchy among these shelves or there will be madness <laughs> <laughs> now i would just wanted to ask you before i let you go it struck me particularly as i went through as got towards the end of the book of a tone of sort of self-reproach entering it i mean there's various things like you've got a one epigraph to the chapter on the dance where you, you quote someone saying is that one person's self-ethnography can be elevated to grandiose proportions. <laughs> and if you later on you have somebody saying, um, get your head out of the ass of the past. Is it's a bit yeah. of you that's going, I, I should stop talking about my childhood. Yeah. Yeah, I had a joke come to my mind just recently that, you know, one of the best titled books ever was Nabokov's uh memoir, uh, Speak Memory, uh, but that, you know, an alternate title for Brooklyn crime novel might be Shut Up Memory. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm blessed with, and like every blessing is also a curse, is I have a very strong apprehension of the past and a very deep, sometimes in, for me, mysteriously deep interest in the life just before the kind of horizon of my memory. I always identified with my parents a lot and their culture. I wanted to know where I was from over much, you know, and I sometimes had to remember to be as interested in my friends as I was in their parents. But this book expresses this tension or anxiety about the, as it does push against the subjective life, the personal life, and try to say, let's talk about anything but but myself. <laughs> let's talk about the other people for a change. It also says, let's, what if we could get our ourselves out of the the past and just be in this present space? And, you know, like everything, it only half succeeds. It tries, and the trying is worth doing, and it gets somewhere, and then it falls back into this helplessness, this tendency. You know, the older you are, the more you live predominantly in the past. This is what younger people will remind you of sometimes politely and sometimes impolitely is that the, the frameworks you're bringing to any given conversation are 
starting to look a little wheezy. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this tension, I just tried to make the book express its own anxieties about the problem of being so obsessed with where did it all come from? You know, like, okay, so now you know that your neighborhood had a different name just before you were born. Has that helped you? (laughs) Are you feeling better now? Well, well, everybody knows now, and everybody will hopefully feel better. Jonathan Leatham, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Sam. It was great talking.